busy old day on RTE Radio 1 and plenty to catch up on. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. When he was 14 years of age, underage working, in a mill in, in Belfast, he'd got the arm severed on the very first day of work. He had one arm? He had one arm and it was severed at the shoulder. To get back to the original question, drinking every day, very bad idea. The less we drink, the better. And on, in Ireland, we have very serious problems with drinking. When I started driving 25 years ago, I had hair and looks. <laughs> 25, <laughs> 25 years later, <laughs> I have a body head. <laughs> And we'll start with Morning Ireland and a look forward and backwards to a visit from an American president. So it's been confirmed next Thursday afternoon President Biden will address all members of the Erechthus in a joint sitting of the Doyle and Shannon, becoming the fourth US president to do so, following in the footsteps of Presidents John F. Kennedy, Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. Here's a quick reminder of what they had to say. I am deeply honoured to be your guest in the free parliament of a free island. If this nation had achieved its present political and economic stature a century or so ago, my great-grandfather might never have left New Ross, and I might, if fortunate, be sitting down there with you. The island of 1963, one of the youngest of nations and the oldest of civilizations, has discovered that the achievement of nationhood is not an end, but a beginning I repeat today, there is no place for the crude, cowardly violence of terrorism. Not in Britain, not in Ireland, not in Northern Ireland. All sides should have one goal before them, and let us state it simply and directly. To end the violence, to end it completely, and to end it now. The terrorism... To every single person who lives here, that we want for all of your children the right to grow up in an Ireland where this entire island gives every man and woman the right to live up to the fullest of their God-given abilities and gives people the right to live in equality and freedom and dignity. That is the tide of history. We must make sure that the tide runs strong here, for no people deserve the brightest future more than the Irish. God bless you and thank you. President Bill Clinton there, before that the voices of Ronald Reagan and John F. Kennedy and the fourth US president to address the earth this next Thursday will be President Joe Biden and co-hosting the event with the Kian Corla of the Dáil, Sean O'Farrell, will be the Cahirlach of the Shannon, Senator Jerry Buttimer. And Senator Buttimer, good morning to you. Good morning, Anya. How are you this morning? I'm very well. How are you? The preparations, the formality, you must be up to your eyeballs. Well, it's a, a very busy time for members of the Oireachtas Protocol and communications team and security. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity for us as the Oireachtas, the houses of our parliament, to welcome uh, President Biden to address a joint sitting, as you said, just a fort, uh, sitting in distinguished list of wonderful uh, heads of state who have addressed the Oireachtas um, and also the Dáil. But it's, it's an opportunity for us to hear from President Biden to continue his ongoing support yeah. Uh, of our country in in the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, He's been a strong supporter of Ireland around the protocol, around Brexit, but more importantly, 
as a member mm. of, 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 the, of the Senate in the 1980s, he was very instrumental in, in changing the dialogue around Ireland and the North. Uh, as uh, the member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, um, he was one who put a lot of pressure on President Clinton to change policy. And as Vice President with, with President Obama, he was central to that government's uh, regime, yeah. if you know. But equally then as President, he's been very strong. And I suppose the one thing that we should remember uh, and recognise, Joe Biden has always worn his Irishness He's always been proud to reference his mother and his family and his relations with Ireland. And, you know, it's tremendous that he's coming to visit, but it's even more important that he comes and addresses the Oireachtas. Senator Jerry Buttimer there. Then later, Rachel spoke to genealogist Megan Smolignac about discovering President Biden's Galway roots. Well, I'm an Irish-American myself, so I've always had an interest in uh, high-profile individuals that may have Irish heritage, and particularly people that I have respect for. And so way back when he was vice president, I decided to go looking into his roots to learn a little bit more. He's famously proud of his Irish heritage. Uh, so I was curious you know, to know, learn the exact details, which family members and when did they come and, and what was their backstory, that kind of thing. And how easy or how difficult difficult was that? Uh, you know, it's tricky when you have famine era, which is what most of his family is, because once you get back then, the, the trick is crossing the pond, because the records that were created in America by the people who came um, are pretty skimpy. But, you know, if you check out things like tombstones and, uh, you know, all sorts of fun, obscure sources, um, and also, if you do a bit of a surround and conquer, just don't do the one immigrant you're interested in. Do their brothers and sisters as well. Um, sooner or later, you get lucky and find something that tells you, you know, the town that you're looking for. Now, you found a new branch of the family. What can you tell us? Well, he can now claim Galway as part of his heritage. OK, so not just Louth and Mayo, Galway as well. Yeah, yeah there's a third county in the mix. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, the, the family members are delighted by it. They were actually the ones who approached me. What happens oftentimes is um, once my research gets out there, people then contact me saying, hey, I think I might be a cousin, that kind of thing. And very often, sad to say, it turns out to be wishful thinking. But in this case, it, it, it panned out. I did a little bit of digging. Uh, actually, I did a lot of digging. <laughs> uh, and it turned out to be absolutely true. So yes, now we have some cousins in the vicinity of Oromore. And since you first started all of this digging into Joe Biden's background, I gather you've met him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you know, he's he really is a, a very friendly fellow. The first contact I had with him is when he just called me out of the blue one Friday afternoon when I was working. Um, he had seen one of my articles. I think I wrote a little tribute when his mother passed, It was is what it was. And he just called uh, back when he was vice president. And so that was my first contact. And then several years later, I got to meet him for the first time. At, uh, he was inducted into the Irish America Hall of Fame. And after that, he's been kind enough to invite me to his St. Patrick's Day events. So I've had the opportunity to chat with him a few times. And by the way, he is really genuinely into his roots because pretty much every time I see him he ends up pulling out some family records or he, he'll recite a poem that his grandfather wrote and that kind of thing. Um, he's And I think he's pretty famous for just knowing all the Irish poets by heart. You know, anytime he gets a chance in a speech he'll drop a few lines. Megan Spolinac talking to Rachel English on Morning Ireland. And on today with Claire Byrne, dispelling the health myth around alcohol consumption.
Now though, we've all heard the claims that some alcohol, if taken in moderation, could be good for your health. Well, a new study examining decades of research has debunked that theory and found many previous studies on the issue were flawed. This review examined existing research on the health and drinking habits of nearly 5 million people. It also found that drinking relatively low levels of alcohol can actually increase the risk of disease. Professor Frank Murray is a liver specialist and chairman of Alcohol Action Ireland. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Claire. How so are you? I'm, I'm you? good. I'm good. So we're looking at this meta-analysis. It's 107 studies and they combed through the research to come up with what we're talking about today. Do the results surprise you at all? Well, they disappoint me, but they don't surprise me. Um, so but what they find is there is no health benefit in drinking alcohol at all. And that, I think, should be stated very clearly. And the point they make from this meta-analysis, which evaluated almost 5 million people who are part of these various 107 studies you you mentioned, was that there's no benefit from low-volume alcohol consumption. And that very much resounds with um, many of the other findings that have been found in recent years, um, which have found that whatever benefits there may be in ischemic heart disease, in, in coronary disease, which are small, whatever benefit there may be there, is overwhelmed by the other harmful effects of alcohol, particularly particularly, the effect of alcohol in causing cancers at relatively low levels of consumption. So you'll have and people, sorry to, to interrupt you, Frank, but we'll, we'll be listening to this and saying, well, I've read that article, as most of us have, a glass of red wine every day, just one glass, is good for your heart health. You're saying that's as may be, but it's doing other things as well, undesirable things. I'm not even saying that. I'm saying that certain types of heart disease, it may be be helpful, Um, but it's not not at all helpful when you look at other types of heart disease and when you look at the other harmful negative impacts. For instance, if you look at atrial fibrillation, which is very common, you meet many people now who are on blood thinners because of atrial fibrillation. It's an irregular heartbeat due to problems of the atrium. That's precipitated by or caused by alcohol or worsened by alcohol or more likely to occur if people continue to drink. So, you know, so it's very important that we don't think alcohol is good for our heart. Alcohol can cause lots of different effects on our heart. In one particular condition, it may be harm, it may be helpful, but it, that beneficial effect is overwhelmed by the harmful effects. So what then is the advice that we should be following, Frank? So I think it's 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 a tricky one, really, and I would argue that I would argue that the impacts of we, we should look at alcohol like driving. So many, it's not like tobacco, really, but because we we definitely want anybody um, using tobacco because tobacco is such a harmful product. Whereas many of us want to drink for social reasons. I drink small amounts of alcohol myself. Many of my friends and family drink. So there's no question about getting rid of alcohol, like we'd like to get rid of. Um, like we'd like to get rid of uh, tobacco. But what it's much more like is driving. So we want to continue to drive, but we want to do it in a way that's safe. And I'd argue we should be looking at ways of making alcohol consumption safer. And the best way to do that is to very much restrict the amount of alcohol we take to very, very little Mm -hmm. and make it something that we take as a celebration rather than as a routine. So to get back to the original question, drinking every day, very bad idea. The less we drink, the better. And in Ireland, we have very serious problems with drinking. We're one of the heaviest uh, drinking countries in Western Europe, which is one of the heaviest drinking uh, regions in the world. 
So we should be pushing down population alcohol consumption. We know that will have huge impacts. How do you how, how, how do you do it? How do you consume alcohol? So what I do is, so we would open a bottle. We don't drink Monday to Thursday in general. That's not entirely true. We do make exceptions, but we don't drink from Monday to Thursday. We open a bottle of wine on a Friday, which we'd often finish on a Saturday or mm. on a Sunday. That's and between that's two, two people, people, two days, two between people. Two people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two or three days, uh, two people. Now, I'm not saying we do, and sometimes we had have a little bit more, but, you know, I, would, I wouldn't binge drink. You know, heavy episodic drinking, that's what people drink a lot of drink. Mm-hmm. That is very harmful because, not, not particularly because it leads to liver disease or cancers, but because of the harms of the event of drinking. So if you look at liver death, or if you look at alcohol deaths, about one in three or one in four deaths from alcohol is not due to chronic disease like cancer or liver disease or heart disease. It's due to the event of drinking, going out, falling off your bike, getting involved in a row, becoming depressed, taking your own life. So, you know, the event of drinking is very, uh, a very significant cause of death due to accidents, incidents, etc. Mm. And Claire asked Dr. Murray about normalising everyday drinking. And you, uh, in your work as a, a liver specialist, I know you see people who are at the very raw end of this and people who have succumbed to that notion of wine o'clock and, you know, you, you get little kitchen signs saying that and people have normalised having wine every day. There is a consequence and you've seen that. Oh, oh for certain. I mean, to be honest with you, I'll tell you how I got involved in, in speaking out about alcohol, because I worked just in the trenches for many years as a liver doctor, as a trainee and as a consultant. And I'd come home at night and I'd say to my wife, I just the terrible things that I'd seen at work in terms of people dying from liver failure from alcohol at young ages. Particular, and, and especially when we came, I came back from abroad, particularly young women, because we'd never really seen that before when I was a trainee. And my wife said, you know, Frank, what you're doing is futile. You need to try and influence people reducing their alcohol consumption in Ireland. So I naively got involved in that. And that's why that's been my journey to where I am now. So I spent much of my time when I was in Bowman Hospital looking after people who had liver failure. Now, liver failure is a very tricky illness to treat because we don't have, if you think if you get respiratory failure or or kidney failure, you can go on a ventilator or be dialyzed. There's no organ support system, you see, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. for liver disease. So, so we saw and we see we saw and see terrible numbers of people dying from particularly alcohol-related liver diseases. And it's worth saying, Claire, you know, if you look at the progress that's been made in Ireland and in Europe in relation to health, cancer death rates have fallen dramatically, heart death rates have fallen dramatically, many respiratory death rates have fallen because they have, and that's been the direction of travel for everything except liver death. So liver deaths have been relentlessly increasing. Deaths due to liver disease have been relentlessly increasing. And have you seen a change, Frank, in the people who are experiencing liver liver failure? I mean, I mentioned there, you know, women who have normalised a glass of wine or more every day. Are you seeing those people? Oh, yeah, yeah, for certain. So just just to put it in perspective, when I was a trainee, the, the people, most women dying from liver disease died from immune liver disease, which is completely unrelated to um, alcohol. And men, most or many of the people dying from alcohol-related liver disease were older and men. And, and a lot of them were doing things, I'd say, drinking in the early opening pubs and stuff yes. like that. Not, not drinking at home, but it was quite a different kind of culture. Um, now things have changed. So there are far more women. Now, 
there are still far more men overall because, uh, you know, alcohol-related liver disease still kills about twice or three times as many men as women. But we now see far more women than we've saw previously and increasing numbers. Mm-hmm. And that relates to what you said, wine o'clock, that sort of, and the marketing. And of course, this isn't because people sometimes say, oh, it's our culture to drink. That's rubbish. It's and, marketing and, and advertising. And, and do you think that if you have a woman coming into you in her, in her 40s who has liver failure, are they surprised that their lifestyle has led them to this point? Did they know what they yeah. were doing? I, I, I think that very few people who are drinking really realise the risks associated with it. And it's become so normalised um, here in Ireland. Heavy drinking is the norm for in many parts of Ireland. He- heavy and harmful drinking. And people don't believe that they have a problem. And in fact, it's interesting... I, I've seen several patients who've said to me, I didn't realise, I'm not a problem drinker, I can stop now. And they stop now. They're not dependent on alcohol. Mm-hmm. They're habitual drinkers. They've never missed a day at work. They've looked after their children often reasonably well, although there are often terrible consequences for the family members and, and friends of, of people who've got alcohol-related problems, as well as for the patients themselves, as was very clearly outlined in your colleague Joe Duffy's shows recently, where he had a number of people on who's whose uh, family members have died from alcohol or who had suffered yes. consequences of alcohol themselves. Professor Frank Murray from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Morning Ireland, challenging conspiracy theories in an age of misinformation. Here's Rachel English. A study by researchers at University College Cork has questioned many current methods for challenging conspiracy theories. The study is the first comprehensive review of the effectiveness of existing methods for tackling such beliefs. Keno Mahoney of UCC's School of Applied Psychology is the study's lead researcher and he joins us now. Can we start with, with the obvious? What what is a conspiracy theory and, and what makes some people vulnerable to them? Hi, so essentially uh, conspiracy theories, fake news and misinformation are generally spoken about in the same sentence, but they all have kind of elements in them that make them distinct from one another. So what makes conspiracy theory conspiracy theory is any sort of belief or explanation that involves a supposed group that's acting in secret in an attempt to cover up sort of a crime or an act. So an analogy I usually use is that the existence of Bigfoot may not necessarily be a conspiracy, but if there is a group trying to conceal the fact that Bigfoot exists, that's what makes it a conspiracy then. Mm. So... Yeah, these conspiracy theories, I mean, they've always been around. Like 60 years after the death of JFK, there's still an (laughs) industry of theories about his murder. But has social media, has that made a big difference? Uh, I imagine the the gap between people and information has definitely kind of exacerbated um, how these conspiracy theories can come about. Um, today, we can kind of look up information or find people who think like us a lot more easily than you would before. Mm. How then did you go about looking at methods to undermine or to challenge conspiracy theories? What did you do? So essentially, we conducted something called a systematic review. And what this is, is we uh, create sort of a protocol and a search criteria. And we search uh, all the available literature on the topic using a number of keywords or key sentences. This catches a number of papers. And we go through a rigorous screen process with myself and some of my colleagues. And we break down the papers from, let's say, a pool of 2,000 to what we found in our study was a pool of 13 papers. Once we have the papers that we think 
are eligible for inclusion. We work through those papers and we try to find the relevant data. In our case, we wanted to see um, a numerical value that showed how effective the interventions were at changing conspiracy beliefs. And we wanted to compare them then across the board to see what was working, what wasn't working, and what was the general kind of trend we saw. So what then was your main finding? Um, I can generally sum up my findings into like two main points. One was that most of the interventions, unfortunately, didn't seem to be uh, too effective. We found that while some of them produced some changes, they were quite small. So there is a silver lining, though, and we found that the second point is that there are a handful of interventions that showed quite a bit of promise. So these interventions can generally be summed up as interventions that encourage people to have an analytical mindset, and then there was also educational interventions that taught people explicit critical thinking skills to analyse pseudoscientific claims. Many people, though, who support conspiracy theories, and I'm thinking in particular of some of those that are fairly prevalent at the moment, they would argue that they're the ones who are already engaging in critical thinking and that the rest of us aren't willing to challenge the consensus. Mm. Well, I will say before I kind of uh, get into why this is the case, that a a bit of healthy scepticism isn't a bad thing. It can go a long way. The problem is generally when you start uh, putting information together out of thin air. So we do have some evidence that shows that critical thinking is somewhat correlated with your ability, your susceptibility to believe conspiracy theories. And there are a number of logical errors and cognitive biases that are associated with people uh, being susceptible to kind of what we'd call implausible conspiracies, where just the plausibility of them actually occurring is just too low. So how then do you go about encouraging critical thinking? Can it be taught or what do you do? So from the data we found in our study, in our review, we identified that that critical thinking intervention was actually a three-month university course. And the interesting thing about this course was that they were comparing people's conspiracy belief to another university course where they're teaching people research methods. So just general research methods that you'd study in any sort of social science class. So these students were learning about the scientific method, hypothesis testing, but in the critical thinking class, they were doing something similar, but they were explicitly teaching them to break apart pseudoscience. Students each week came up on top of the class and they presented um, a number of, on a number of topics such as the UFOs, uh, Ouija boards, uh, conspiracy theories, and they argued for and against these beliefs. The other students who were not presenting would then try to pick apart the, the presenting students' arguments. And each week then their lecturers would give them feedback. So the difference between these two classes is in the pseudoscience class, students were taught explicitly to directly piece apart and to put together pseudoscientific beliefs. And they were trained, they were trained in the skill, as you mentioned there, to understand how they become better at spotting pseudoscience. Oh, right. So it seems it's not just teaching people how scientific literacy works, while that might be important. It's explicitly teaching people how to apply their critical thinking skills to breaking apart and understanding what separates a pseudoscience or what separates an unfounded belief from something that's a lot more plausible. Kian O'Mahony talking to Rachel English on Morning Ireland. And in the morning, Oliver Callan was talking about the one-armed wonder, the incredible life of Jimmy Hasty with Paddy Malone. I'm sitting across from Paddy Malone. He's come up from Dundalk and he'll talk the hind legs, hind legs off a donkey. <laughs> and he's telling me I've lost my Inniskeen accent because Dundalk is very, very close to home. Welcome, Paddy. Thank you very Thank you much. Uh, Jimmy Hasty, this is the story we're talking about. He is one of the most remarkable, most unbelievable 
uh, and overlooked players, isn't he? Uh, but would you have a family connection? Let's start there with this story. OK, well, the, the family connection is that my father was chairman of the club. Yeah. Uh, he was involved with uh, Dundalk Football Club from 1955 to 1996 when he died. Um, and he was vice president of the FAI at, event, at, at some stage. But anyway, he, Jimmy, uh, he heard about Jimmy and he went down to have a look at him. He was playing in a junior match in 1961 in Newry. Uh, he's from Belfast. Yeah. And uh, Dad was so impressed with him that uh, he wrote his own cheque to sign him as a professional player. Yeah. Um, and signed him and just thought this was the best thing that he'd ever done. And... Um, so he presents this idea he presents at the meeting, this to, doesn't he? To the, he presents this to a meeting to propose to, to sign him, not telling them that he'd done it. Um, and there was a debate on it. And one of the players was aware of a slight problem that Jimmy had yeah. and uh, objected. That objection was sustained. And uh, Dad said, well, look, I've signed him. And the answer back was, your check, your problem, we're not covering it. Yeah. And... Dad said, well, look, at that time, there was no manager as such. There was a coach, but there was no manager. So the, the board of directors picked the team. And I mean, could, I, I, the idea of wow. a, a bunch of, you know, the, the, the local businessmen pick, sitting down and picking <laughs> yeah. the team. The committee, the it, Chamber it, of it, Commerce, it, basically, it, in the town. Yeah, I mean, crazy situation. And they said, We're not, we, we can't have this fella playing for us. No, uh, but your so father Dad proposed him for goalkeeper, and we'll understand later why that was a bit strange. <laughs> um, well, no, tell us now why well, they objected to Well, they objected Jimmy to Hastie. him because he had a disability, yeah. uh, which was that when he was 14 years of age, uh, underage working, in a mill in, in Belfast, he'd got the arm severed on the very first day of work. So he was completely handicapped. He had one arm? He had one arm and it was severed at the shoulder. It wasn't that there was a... John Murphy, who's captain of the team, says there was a slight stump. If it was, it was about an inch. Yeah. You know, I've, I've seen photographs of it. No, there was just... There was nothing there. It's incredible. So Jimmy Hasty was playing really well for Newry Town. No, a, a junior match, junior club below He's, Newry Town. Oh, right, OK. Was you know, he? yeah. So your dad's quite the talent spotter. And he says, look, we've signed this guy now. It's too late. And the word gets out, doesn't it? That word gets out Dundalk that Dundalk have signed this one-arm player and everyone's going, what the hell is that about? And it's a Sunday afternoon, 1961. Um, there's nobody else. There's not much of the day. There's not Sky Sports to mm -hmm. distract anybody. So people came up to have a laugh. Yeah. I mean, putting it crudely, people came up to see the, you know, I'm not supposed to say the freak show, but that's what it was. And people came up and Jimmy understood that. That's uh, how they regarded it. And that's what they regarded it. Yeah. And uh, Dad was an accountant like myself. Uh, so he was counting the money uh, at the gate. Uh, I, he never missed a match in 50 years, but he never saw the first half of any match uh, because he was looking after the gate. And uh, 20 minutes into the match, one of the directors puts his head around the door and says, Jim, whatever you're owed, take it out of the gate. He has scored one, made a second, and he's unplayable. The opposition don't know what to do with him. <laughs> it's just unreal. So all the people who came to make fun of Dundalk... Within 20 minutes, they man. had shut up. <laughs> he was a phenomenon. Phenomenon. Uh, he, he, he was incredible. Uh, many years later, when I was in UCD playing very junior football, uh, I had too many disabilities, slow as a cart horse and everything else. And... Um, I asked a referee that I recognised who had done League of Ireland refereeing, what was it like to referee in Oriel Park, Dundalk's home ground? And he looked at me and says, I hated the place. I had to deal with Hasty. Did you, do you know him? And I said, yeah, I know him. Yeah, and he said, I never knew when he fell, was it because of, on balance, yeah. whether it oh, was right. deliberate, whether he was looking for the foul, 
But the one thing I knew about every time he hit the every time he hit the ground, the crowd was shouting for a penalty, even if it was on the opposition side. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't matter. The crowd was just on, on my case the whole time. He became like he was the Maradona for he was, Dundalk. Yeah, I mean, and the thing about it is, Dundalk hadn't won a league in thirty years. Mm-hmm. Now we know we now know that Dundalk and Shamrock Rovers. I hate to say that name. Nineteen thirty three. Thirty three, sixty three. I mean, we've now won th- fourteen leagues since then. And this was the start of that process. 1963 to, was the start of Dundalk being like being serious, serious players. players. I mean, yeah. nothing, none between 33 and 63, then two in the 60s, two in the 70s, two in the 80s, two in the 90s. We pause and then Stephen Kenny and, and five. So Oliver asked Patty about Jimmy's early life. Let's take a wee step back. Uh, to Jimmy Hasty's upbringing, because he comes from Belfast, doesn't he? Sailor Town. It's a mixed. It's a mostly Protestant but mixed area around the docks. And Sailor Town. So he and he he went to a mill at the age uh, of fourteen. A mill at fourteen, which yeah. is you know underage working, but needs must. Loses he, his arm. What happens then? Loses his arm, and uh, he just plays junior football and gets the chance from my father gave him that nobody else could could see. Now people uh, in his life, because uh, he he married obviously later, but she talked about. How um, he just got on with it, didn't he? He just. You mean, look, one of the things about Jimmy is very quickly that you realise, and I can remember as a kid going out to ask him for his autograph, mm. and like with one arm he, he couldn't do it. So he made me, he made me kneel down as a table, and then he knelt down and wrote his name. I mean, my father saw it from the ground and he had a fit. You know, <laughs> you've embarrassed the man. And I said, no, I didn't. He just got on with life. Yeah. I mean, when you talk to the players, I mean, John Murphy, I, I keep going back to the man because he was this captain and he, he does talk a lot about him. Um, John said the only two things he couldn't do was tie his shoelaces uh, and um, take a throw in because you do need yeah, two arms yeah, for the throw in. But apart from that, he could do everything, including uh, lighting up a cigarette uh, with one hand. Okay. <laughs> and like, he was an amazing footballer, of course, we say. Yeah, I mean, he was. And the, the test of that is that he had... He was. They didn't go score on the dock for t- four seasons. I think it was. Yeah. He was, didn't go score in the league for one season. He won his league medal. Um, he was the leading. Everybody knew that he was the threat in the dock. That that you know when you were playing the dock, you had to mark Hasty if you could. Yeah. But the real test was, we qualified for what's now called the Champions League, which is the European Cup in those days, mm-hmm. and we were playing uh, Zurich, who were a very successful side at the time. Yeah. In the um, 60s. In the sixties, and um, this is stratospheric now, isn't you know, it? For, we're, we're, for in, we're, we're in a different area, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, we, we really are. No Irish team had ever won a match away from home mm-hmm. in a European competition, and very few have done it since, by the way. But no Irish team had even remotely come close to it. So here we were flying to Zurich, and the chairman. There's a story told that the chairman of Zurich, welcoming the team, watched Timmy Lyons or Tom Lyons to give him his proper name. Story by Tad as well, coming down with his elbow in a sling. Yeah. Um. F- t- um. Uh, one. Um. Oh God, his name's gone out of my head for a second. Coming down. Uh, on, on, a, uh, on a crutches because he had sprained his wrist. Uh, his sprained his foot. And then Jimmy got down with the one arm and the chairman of Zurich said, gentlemen, you're all very welcome to Switzerland and to Zurich, but can I just point out to you that the plane to Lourdes was the next plane. (laughs) (laughs) All these fellas hobbling. All these fellas hobbling or looking. That was was good motivation, wasn't it? This was was the champions of Ireland and this was the way they arrived. Yeah, yeah. One with an elbow in the sling, one with a crutch and one with one arm. (laughs) And, And what happened? Um, 
Dundalk went 2-0 up very quickly mm-hmm. and Jimmy hit the crossbar in the last five minutes. Now, they had trounced us 3-0 in Dalyman Park. That's right. So, we needed to win 3-0. Yeah. We were 2-0 up with five minutes to go. Jimmy hit the crossbar. Unbelievable shot. Unbelievable way, shot. I mean, I've only <sighs> recently seen it, as you know. Yes. Um, he beats get, the goalie. He beats the goalie, everything else. Ball rebounds. Zurich scored one goal, which was a consolation for them. But then Doc still, north or south, Linfield, Glentorn, Drumcondra, and it goes to show you how far back we're going now, yeah. Shamrock Rovers, nobody had ever won a match away from home. Until and here then. we are, and the man who scored the second and made the first was a one-armed player from Belfast. And Oliver wondered how players viewed playing against Jimmy Hasty. Did the opponents treat him differently because he had one arm? Initially, I think the first two or three matches, they would have stood off him a wee bit, as they would say. But very quickly, they realised if they stood off him, he was going to make a fool of them. So his balance was incredible. Mm. His height was, you know, he was a very tall man. He was over six foot two. Yeah. Uh, he, he had a natural ability with both feet. So he was the all-round footballer. Very quickly, I mean, it became known that to beat Dundalk or even to tackle with Dundalk, you had to take on Hasty. So... Uh, there was a famous thing from one of the Cork's uh, centre-halves saying... I actually, say, I have a clip here from the documentary which will come to John Murphy. John Murphy, uh, the well, Dundalk this, captain. This yep. the Dundalk captain and here's what he's talking about, uh, the, the, how the opposition viewed Jimmy Hasty. You remember the game we played here against Cork Celtic? Big Joe in Corkland came over to me after the game and he says, Hey Murphy, where did you get that one-armed bandit? I said, well, you give him a message. Tell him the next time I play him against him, I'll pull the other arm out of him. <laughs> he gave me, me the hardest game of football I got for a, lo- a long, long time. He gave me the hardest game of football I had for a long, long time. I mean, he was a serious, he was a serious player. That's a clip from the documentary, which is on UEFA.com. Yeah. And uh, because the story of Jimmy Hasty has started to emerge, I think, was, was it Radio Ulster? first? Radio Ulster did a story about 10 years ago. And you mentioned Rory Carroll earlier on in the programme. Yeah. He actually did a very good piece in The Guardian about five or six years ago about him as well. Guardian Journals, yeah. yeah. Amazing. And so his family, because we, we'll go on to, he goes on to have family members. Uh, he dies young. And we'll come to the reasons for that in a second. But the, the, no one had seen footage. Of no one had seen footage. I mean, when BBC Radio Ulster did the documentary 10 years ago, they asked me, was there, was there, could I remember seeing any footage? And I said, I remember against a match against St. Patrick's Athletic in Inchicore where he literally nearly killed himself trying to get to a cross. Uh, and because anyone who remembers St. Patrick's Athletics ground knows that there's a hell of a slope on it. Oh, okay. they, they say that if you're standing on the halfway line, you're level with the crossbar at one end, if you follow me. Yeah. Uh, and he stretched so hard that he actually fell into the terracing and he couldn't stop Go himself. Uh, I remember that vividly. I was 10. The other thing was I said, well, maybe there's something in Switzerland. Uh, BBC then did because we know the RT tapes don't really exist from that early era early yeah, 60s I mean, no, and the recycled. answer back the answer back from uh, Swiss TV was that like every other station with the exception of BBC and there's a reason for that which we don't need to go into um, all the tapes were over recorded over recorded and over recorded yeah, because yeah. of the expense of tape that's right so BBC so Swiss TV came back and said no tape we've got nothing we've got nothing and then the day before they were broadcasting the documentary um the guy, Paul McLean, rang me and he said, um, when, you, when you think it's all over, and I said, oh, not that cliche. To think it's all over, it is now. <laughs> Kenneth Wilson's commentary in the 66 World Cup final. Oh, God. And I said, what? And he said, we found two and a half minutes of tape because it was such an unusual story. 
Swiss TV ran it in the news, wow. not in the sports oh, news. And that's why it survived. And the news was kept. And the news was kept. And it's that match you were talking about in Zurich. In Zurich, where we won 2-1. And I, I, I was, when, before I had seen it, I was wondering, is this going to be like kind of shonky football from the 60s? But it's it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, UEFA did a huge job on tidying it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, the original... Well, I mean, the, st- lo- the, the quality of football. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we, we're talking Champions League. We're, the, we're the not talking about making it. Yes. Yeah, of a six foot two man with one arm is just incredible. Yeah. And when we talk about that when he hits the crossbar. I mean, he throws himself into the air in a volley. Do you know, he was unbelievably brave, wasn't he? Fear didn't enter into it. I mean, that's what I was talking about the, the goal against, the, 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 the attempt against Pats. He, he feared nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, and he, he used the strength. Like, he, he, he didn't ask for any quarter and he didn't, certainly didn't give any quarter, you know. And. You know, the players got to know him very quickly that he was who, you know, he was the player, he was the star player. Yeah. And I remember once somebody asking me, you know, what did you make of this disability? It got to a point where there was no disability. Mm. What disability are you talking about? Didn't see it. We all have a disability when we do anything in life. Yeah. Jimmy's just had to be a bit pronounced. Yeah. So but he, that's all he was. He just got on with it. He was a huge, huge star, really beloved in talk, wasn't he? You can't even... He still is. Stay. Yeah. Still and is. every kid, when I was in school playing football, we all... Put never put our left arm through the sleeve of our jumper. Mm. We left it dangling because we all wanted to be Jimmy Hasty. So Jimmy, he goes on. He he gets married. Uh, he has is it two children? Two children. Two children. And nineteen seventy four. Tell us what happens to Jimmy Hasty. It's a strange date, the eleventh of October, because my father died on the eleventh of October ninety six, but twenty two years early on the eleventh of October seventy four, he rang me very upset with the news that. Jimmy had been dragged from a bus stop and shot in the back by the UVF mm. and was dead. And this is the end of this unbelievable story. He was well, a young man. He was, he was 38. He was 38. a young man. Two, ki- two small kids. Peggy, uh, his wife. Yeah. Two boys. They were two and seven at yeah. the time. And he, Mrs. Hasty never talked until the UEFA documentary last year. Right? She never talked about it. I mean, Rory Carroll and several others called Paul McLean and BBC all called, nope, not interested but I, I'm glad she did it because you know in 10 years time it will be impossible to put these documentaries together and, and, and explain it's just about in time to get it done because 10 years time it'll be just a bit too late and her contribution to the documentary is is oh god of a mighty heartbreaking, heartbreaking. and yeah. you can still see the visible oh grief. there's the pain there and there's the grief yeah really? and it, you know it reminds people of what the north is yeah. Jimmy like yeah. me yeah Paddy Malone talking about Jimmy Hasty with Oliver Callan in the morning. And on today with Claire Byrne, marking 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, Brian O'Connell was reporting from Armagh. I'm here in the centre of Armagh City in a very different Northern Ireland, St. Patrick's Cathedral behind me. It's a, it's a bright morning, but it's a different Armagh and it is a different Northern Ireland to one a quarter of a century ago. There is now, as you said, this whole generation who've grown up post-conflict, many of them of voting age. And I spent much of yesterday in different parts of Armagh discussing issues like identity, inclusion, what the Good Friday Agreement means to them and how society can move on from the current political paradigm. And while it is a changed landscape here, you are reminded the past isn't very far away. Uh, I was struck that a couple of miles after crossing into Northern Ireland yesterday, I noticed a sign which said Irish unity was the solution to Brexit. A couple of miles past that, in a separate area, were signs saying loyalists would never accept a border in the Irish Sea. So you can see the past is ever present. What is being felt by all communities here are the impacts 
of the current political impasse, be it in health, be it in housing, or as I discovered, in youth services. And the young people that you met, they're feeling all of those things. Absolutely. And I began in Portadown where uh, students from the local area from Portadown College, we met in a fantastic new YMCA building. They've received one twelfth of their funding for that building to run it. Uh, They're funding now for maybe two or three months in place because of the impasse. So I met with students from Portadown College along with their politics teacher. And as you'll hear, they were particularly engaged, Claire, on the issue of identity, beginning with Hannah, who told me she's reminded by the past just walking around her hometown. You can just be walking down the street and imported on where our school is. There's a very heavily um, Protestant area and Catholic area and I feel like there is sort of still tension if you were walking down an area that you're not from, you would still sort of feel a bit, oh, like you wouldn't feel like you would about it 20 years ago, but you'd still be aware of it. It would still be like in the back of your mind. That's so interesting. And people talk about this emerging identity here, a Northern Irish identity. What do you think about that? My mum's side of the family are English, so I would class myself majoritively British, but I still do hold a part of Northern Irish identity. It's where I was born, it's where I grew up, and I feel like I am proud to be Northern Irish, but I'm not proud of what comes out of Northern Ireland. What do you mean by that? I'm not proud of the resentment and sectarianism and all of the fighting and all of that. I'm not proud to like. I'm not proud of that part of my identity. My name's Callum. So we do uh, cross community and cross border stuff with a school in Donegal. And what the main thing I've realised is we see them like once a month. It's not really Protestant Catholic United Ireland. Yes and no. It's more like young people. It must be frustrating for you, as young people, seeing this paralysis, if you like, at the heart of government here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it'd be better to go back into government, but I think. I think the protocol does need sorted out before we can go back into government. I grew up like mostly on my dad's side in a very um, unionist household and I don't align myself with very many of the beliefs that he holds so I feel like that's encouraging. Like I would probably say I'm Northern Irish, like I wouldn't say I'm British, I wouldn't say I'm Irish. Would your parents have called themselves Northern Irish? Uh, my grandfather would probably call himself British. We'd have a divided town like so some places you won't be really welcome to go, some places they won't be welcome to go. That's still there. Yeah, it's still there. Now, there have been some flashpoints in Portadown where you were speaking to those people in recent times. Yes, and there is a still a built interface in Portadown, although in 2013 there was a commitment to have all of these so-called peace walls down across Northern Ireland. Now, this hasn't quite happened. There has been some progress. The young people I met, they obviously talked about integration. They talked about moving on. But... That built interface, it remains a stubborn physical divide, if you like, in their hometown. I spoke to Nathan White, who's a youth work manager in the YMCA in Portadown. He talked to me about the presence of the Peace Wall in Portadown. I guess some of the, the geographical uh, makeup of, of Portadown is that it has one of the biggest interfaces um, outside of Belfast. So that physical structure of segregation is still um, present. A wall that segregates one side of the community with the other. Protestant, Catholic. Um, so certainly for us, we, we try to work with young people to be able to articulate who they are. So what happens if that wall comes down? In reality, the wall will come down um, and I don't think not anything will happen. It's the evil we know rather than the evil we don't know. So if that wall was to come down, it's the unknown. I think we have moved on a lot since the Good Friday Agreement. So why do you think there's a need for a physical boundary? Yeah, I think it's... Just- 
mainly of like it's one percent of people who are doing that because you know, some people are never going to change that's the thing some people are just always going to be stuck there so what would happen if it was taken down i you'd like to think nothing would happen but just that one percent of people like for me obviously i'm 17 d- didn't grow up there and i was like why is that still there but then obviously i do get why people are like i 100 percent because i'm a unionist i Brit- i think i'm british and uh, i 100 percent get why people think that because like what some people did to some people like my granddad's church got bombed, he was a minister, his church got bombed, that's his religion, and it's my religion, and his church got bombed. It's, in a way, it's hard to move on, but, so I can understand a bit, but I think it's, obviously, it's 30 years old now, and I think most people have moved on well. Nathan there, and Brian spoke about meeting a young man born just after the agreement was signed. I met with Keelan Leeper, and he told me his mum was Catholic, his dad is Protestant, he was born, as you said, a couple of weeks after the Good Friday Agreement, so he's 25 uh, next month, and... He's one of the peace babies, they were called. These were people born the year the Good Friday Agreement was signed. They were seen, Claire, really as a sign of hope, a sign of future leadership, perhaps, a a new direction for here. Keelan is studying history, and this is some of what he taught me about what life is like here for him today. Well, I'm from a, I suppose, what's classically termed up here, um, a mixed marriage. There has been talk or speculation, but it hasn't really been borne out in the census, about around this Northern Irish identity. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? For some people, that's a that's another identity. You know, when you're talking about political designation, unionist, nationalist, other. For other people, it's very clearly because it's a Northern Irish identity. It's almost comes hand in hand with a British identity. For other people, it, with Irish in the title, it's an acknowledgement of that, but an awareness that you're in Northern Ireland, that sort of thing. So given that you're pretty much the same age as the Good Friday Agreement, what does it mean to you? You have the peace process, so to speak, and then you obviously have at the end of the day it's a political agreement that's there to establish institutions so on the one hand you can look at the peace process element and say how significant that has been on the other hand you maybe look at the political agreement and 25 years on where we are now it's sort of up in the air where things will go we're probably entering into a post-agreement sort of stage and I think that's from people who are anti-agreement and pro-agreement Do you feel your voices are being heard? It's hard to say. I suppose we've as much political representation as anybody. One thing people always talk about is you don't get asked if you're Catholic and Protestant anymore. It's like, well, Do you? you? Well, you, you may not be directly asked, but I mean, I think the, the same questions, what school did you go to, etc. People sort of have their ways of sussing out these things. You talked about the identity question earlier, which has really become a hyper-focused topic since the Belfast Agreement. Um, I, I carry a British passport, while... I certainly hold a sense of Irish identity. My sense of Irishness isn't anything to do with the Republic or to do with the nationalist political tradition or republicanism or separatism. So I don't carry an Irish passport. Keelan from Brian O'Connell's report for Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line in the afternoon, Robbie called Philip Boucher Hayes about having second thoughts about his career choice while driving on Irish roads. Uh, just drivers, normal drivers on the M50, M1, N7, uh, not knowing what way they're supposed to be driving. Uh, there, this morning there, I had a woman come from the fast lane straight over into the middle two inside lanes and blocked myself and an air kick off. And, and she decided then that, that she wasn't turning for the uh, red cow. Oh, no, I have to go on straight and back out in front of me. So she jumped from the overtaking lane across the middle lane into the left-hand lane and then yeah, and, drove on the white and line and, yeah. th- and then back again. Yeah. 
It's a regular occurrence, um, Philip. The M50 every day. It's the same thing. And what are you driving, Robbie? I'm driving a tipper, an eight-wheel tipper. An eight-wheel tipper, which would be used to what? To carry refuse? Uh, No, uh, sand and stone and that. Okay. Um, all right, um, so what's what kind of weight can you be carrying when you're fully laden? Uh, between 18 and 20 tonne. So you don't stop on a dime? No, definitely not. And why is it that you say that this has brought you to the brink of giving up your career? Is it for fear or out of fear that you'll end up killing somebody? Exactly. It, it, it's definitely uh, it's definitely going to happen to someone unfortunately someday uh, like people think in cars they can just go by you and swear in front of you and break and, and having never driven a heavy goods vehicle they'd have no idea how long it takes you to stop they think that you should be able to stop on the same kind of distance as them exactly and then you have the ones flying up the hard shoulder undertaking you Undertaking just you to, on the motorway's yeah. hard shoulder. Yeah, just to get ahead of the lorry. Oh, here's a lorry. I have to get ahead of that. And they come out and they'll undertake you and chew in in front of you. And tell me about the motorcyclist yesterday. Yeah, uh, I was going along the M50 yesterday between um, uh, Junction 9 and Junction 8, the, the N4 turn off. And these two bikes come up. One come up on the outside of me and one come up on the inside of me. And they were looking over at each other and going in and out between cars. Right up, like there was two cars in front of me. One mm. on that lane and one on this one. And they went straight through the two of them. So they're having a little dice and they're having great fun for themselves. But what does that do to you? Well, it puts your heart uh, sideways, to tell you the truth. I go home in the evening and just say, I'm glad that day is over. And how many of those days do you have? Well, you'd see it, being honest, you'd see it nearly every day, you'd see something stupid going on, especially the M50. Why the M50 and why not the M11, the M7, the M1? Oh, you'd see them on the M7 as well and the M1. You do see them. But like the M50, um, they, they just don't care. Uh, just jumping from lanes. It's a regular thing. Yeah. It's not good for you, is it? Because I know that, that near car crash sensation where your heart jumps up into your mouth, your adrenaline is coursing through all your veins, your heart is just pumping 90 to the dozen. It can take you quite a while to calm down from that and you're still behind the wheel of 20 tonne of tipper truck. Exactly, yeah. That's the right way I'd be thinking. But like the rules that we have to go through, we have to do a course, one course uh, every year one day, right? It's eight hours, and um, which we don't get paid for, right? It's on our own expense. Um, you have to do this course, and the book there's over a hundred pages in it, and you sit there listen to an instructor telling you these, all these little things. But I reckon, and as soon as they do it, the better. Cyclists, motorbikes, and car drivers, women and men, should be made do the same. Because it'll stop a lot of messing. Well, that's Robbie. Then John called Philip. I'm um, I'm a HUV driver, 25 years now, approximately. And I've two pet hates. Um, one is especially on the M50. 
Women hugging the middle lane. They're always in the middle lane. It's like comfort lane. I'm sure men we do it as well, John. No, no. Ah, they do. Ah, they do. I am not being sexed. I've seen it so often. I have to admit now. I'm not. I'm going to get killed over this, but I'm telling you, I see it all the time. And it really frustrated a truck. Like, well, you well, know, I, you, I'm, you I'm about to put my hand up as a male driver to hog in the middle lane on plenty of occasions because I check myself after to five or ten miles in the M50. I say, so what are you doing in this lane, Philip? You shouldn't be here. Yeah, exactly. Because we, 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 we have restrictions on our trucks and they're 90k on the M50. We cannot go any further, which is another pet hate with a lot of trucks coming in coming by me at over 110 or 105k I don't know how to do it they should have all restrictions the law is 90k and I find as well now I get up for work at 2 every morning and I'm on the road at 4 every morning um, 5 days a week my god and in the winter especially if you have going I go to I do all over the country uh, uh, delivering to chemists my HGV mm-hmm. but I find that a lot of cars will come behind you and want you to pull in on the hard shoulder. Now, our limit is 80K by law, the RSA, on a, on a two-way road. On a dual car, it's 90. It's not 100, it's 90. Mm-hmm. So I find them coming behind me, flashing me to turn up, pull over the hard shoulder, which I will never do because... It's illegal to drive on the hard shoulder. It's yeah. absolutely illegal to drive. I mean, when I, when I started driving 25 years ago, I had hair and looks. <laughs> 25, 25 years later <laughs> I have a body head <laughs> and my wife just get off that road quick no, uh, but that might have happened if you were driving a desk not necessarily a HGV specific thing is it or, or is the stress level that high John well it would, well, it would be uh, yeah it would be because we, we have to stick to the limit of as they 90k on the dual car to 85 on, on the um, on the double road, we also have to get a 45-minute break. We have to, we have our six hours of work time directive, which means all that comes into play with your tachograph. If you go over them, you get infringements with your job. When every day I go back to my work, I have to download my car. They can see my speed, my braking. Um, they can see um, if I overdrive, if I'm going down the hill, if I overdrive over 90, it tells you. It's really very good. Now, it's, it's, it's for the benefit of every HGV driver. If I'm going out of my hours, I just turn around and bring everything back, which is that's a good. Okay. It's very beneficial to new digital cards. Now, I will give it that now. You can go under stress yourself, but you know, if you stick to the law and stick to the HGV um, RSA rules, you're, you're fine. But I presume where you're going fine. with this is, John, there is no logical reason that every single road driver, not just you as a professional driver or in a HGV, but every single road user, everybody in a car or on a motorbike, should probably have some kind of similar form of technology in there which can be checked by a guard. Yeah, well, that's true because, I mean, I... I Absolutely, I agree with you. Um, uh, in the HGV drivers, we come across RSA um, checkpoints an awful lot. I mean, I'm, I'm so used to the people. And they look in their computer and they will say to me, your company has been pulled up so many times. You're, you're, you've got 25 trucks, say. You're, mm. you're in the green. You're okay. You have, you have no infringements, maybe one or two. You know, a fraction of, say, 5% instead of, yeah, 25 or 20%, they'll pull you in and say, look, you have too many infringements. And that does curtail you from speeding, um, on, on your, on being in a hurry all the time. I mean, I'm, I, I, I just, I've an old saying: be thirty minutes late, 
instead of 30 years too early. Mm-hmm, and everybody mm-hmm. had that attitude in the car. Slow down, take your time, and HGVs are monsters. You know, they, do, they don't stop. They don't stop as quick as cars, you know. That's John on the live line with Philip Outcher Hayes. And on Morning Ireland, Tommy Meskell was reporting on a €1 billion underspent in the Department of Housing. To housing now, and the Department of Housing failed to spend more than a billion euro of its capital budget for housing between 2020 and 2022. And last year, which was the first full year of the government's Housing for All plan, more than 471 million euro remained unspent. Tommy Meskell of our political staff has more on this. And Tommy, tell us more about this underspend in the middle of a housing crisis. Yeah, Anya, so this information was provided by the Department of Housing to Sinn Féin's housing spokesperson, Ono Brin, as you said. It goes through the allocation each year for different areas of the department spending uh, and what that spending turned out to be at the end of the year. So in 2020, there was an underspend of 93 million in the capital housing budget. This rising significantly the following year, 2021, to 441 million euro, and then higher again in 2022 uh, to 471 million euro. So altogether, that adds up to an underspend of over a billion euro, uh, which Ono Brin believes uh, could have helped deliver around 4,000 social and affordable homes. What's the department's explanation for this? The department points uh, to the impact of COVID-19 restrictions on the construction sector during that time. Uh, It also says that the invasion of Ukraine prompted inflation, which also had a significant impact, it says, and points out too uh, that the department can also carry over 10% of its capital allocation uh, from one year to the next uh, and that also last year, 2022, saw record spending of, of 3.5 billion on housing. But Ono Brin uh, of Sinn Féin argues that actually, in his view, red tape and bureaucracy are the main reasons behind that underspend. Uh, he argues that onerous checks and balances involved uh, in the delivery of social and affordable homes are slowing down the delivery process to such an extent uh, that money allocated to these projects is not getting spent in time, uh, leading to these uh, significant underspends. Indeed. And uh, whenever the doll returns and after the uh, President Biden visit, we can probably expect uh, to hear more on that whole question of that underspend uh, and why it's happened and how it should be addressed. Tommy Meskell reporting for Morning Ireland. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.